This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. All right. How you doing? All right. Well, really, first of all, I want to thank you and especially the organizers of this event for allowing me, giving me this privilege to be a part of this sacred family conversation. It's my joy to be here. I'm humbled to be a part of it, but glad to stand here before you today. This is not a sermon, but you know, who knows, there might be a little bit of preaching. Here we go. Let's pause and pray. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We need you. That's just about it. We need you. So come, show up, pierce our hearts, fill our minds, move our bodies, that all of us might come under the lordship of Christ, under your word. Send your spirit now and help us, help me, We pray in Jesus' name, amen. My black and brown brothers and sisters in Christ, you are made in the image of God. His embodied likeness, the crown of creation, divine scintillation, engraved with everlasting glory, You are made in the image of God. A mirror reflecting the king's radiant beauty. You are dressed in a robe of sanctity, says Irenaeus, called to represent him everywhere with royal authority. And therefore, declares Brother Calvin, you are a nobility. You are possessed of no small dignity. And you better believe that includes your black body, which Bavink insists is not a tomb, but because of the Imago Dei, a wondrous masterpiece of God, consisting the essence of man as fully as the soul. Dear brothers and sisters, body and soul, you are You are the image of God. The image of a God who speaks, who communicates. Our covenant Lord reveals himself through words. Indeed, Christ himself is called the word, divine communication in flesh and blood. And so, having been created in the image of this God and recreated in the image of his Son, you too are called to speak. To speak the truth in love. 
Now, that's a well-known phrase in Christian circles, isn't it? But what does it really mean? How do we do it? You know, in the original context of Ephesians 2 through 4, speaking the truth in love is presented as the primary ministry tool made available by God's Spirit for the building up of the body of Christ. Through communication of loving and truthful words, the apostle tells us the body will grow out of infancy and into maturity. This body is repeatedly throughout Ephesians described as the messy, multi-ethnic mix of Jews and Gentiles. And this maturity is defined as both, both, Depth in the knowledge, the corporate knowledge of the Son of God, and depth in the inter-ethnic oneness made possible by the blood of Jesus. Let me say that again. According to Ephesians, ecclesiastical maturity includes corporate knowledge of Christ and cross-cultural unity in Christ, and you cannot have one without the other. Which leads us then to two practical implications. One, by these standards, biblical standards, the American church, and perhaps the Reformed church in particular, is an expression of Christ's body that may be rightly described as immature. That should humble us. And two, you are therefore called to speak, to employ the ministry of words in order to help Christ's body to grow out of its cross-cultural infancy that's, of course, an apostolic invitation to fill what might be described as the general prophetic office that's prophetic with a lowercase p, if you will. That's the prophethood of all believers. It's a call to serve as a prophetic witness, to raise a prophetic voice, to speak the truth in love for the cause of racial wholeness, equity, and justice in the church. So, will you speak? Now, some of you, understandably, you're not so sure. It's been an exhausting year, hasn't it? You've heard it several times already, just a few minutes ago, and all throughout the weekend. Many of you are tired. The church's ambivalence about its commitment to interracial solidarity has been unmasked. Divisions, especially across racial lines, have been exposed, exposed, not created, exposed <laughs> and amplified. For some, the church has become the least safe place for members of color, which is why I know many of you limped into this weekend 
weary of the alienating conversations. Some of you feel all alone. Your fidelity to the gospel has been questioned. Some of you feel betrayed. People you thought were allies turned out to be anything but. Friendships have been disrupted or lost. Some have lost ministry opportunities and jobs. Some of you are feeling like strange fruit hanging from Presbyterian poplar trees. So, you're not so sure, not so sure that you're ready to speak up anymore. Or you're not sure what difference it'll make in the struggle against racial sin and evil. And I get it. I don't know all your stories, and I'm not you in your shoes, but I'm tired too. You don't know how hard it was for me to prepare these very words. But what if? Doesn't faith sometimes say, what if? Doesn't hope sometimes say, what if? What if this weekend God gives you the refreshment that you need to remain steadfast just for another day? What if the Holy Spirit can give you grace to risk again? Grace for prophetic courage to rise again, to re-engage, to speak truth to power, to speak love to apathy, light to darkness, righteousness to falsehood, hope to nihilism, good news to despair, even grace to rage. And what if we do this not alone, but together? as a diaspora of witnesses, speaking the truth in love, building up the body into maturity, into racial wholeness, equity, and justice. What if God can do that? Do you believe in a God like that? Before moving forward, I think it's important to start by addressing some limitations, limitations of prophetic speech. We do acknowledge the power of words in the life of the body, yes, but we also acknowledge that speaking, even speaking the truth in love, cannot solve anything. Everything, I meant. Cannot solve everything. <laughs> cannot solve anything. Let's go home. No. <laughs> Let's pray. No. Cannot solve everything. Let me tell you about it. First, limitations of prophetic speech. First, we must embrace, embrace the value of prophetic silence. There is a time not to speak. Oftentimes, it's simple. That time is when you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Some of y'all need to listen up. Sometimes I need to listen up. You don't know what you're talking about, or if you know you need more time to reflect and pray. 
Do you know that you do not need to have an opinion on every racial issue and incident? And you do not need to immediately share your take on it all the time. Silence is not always proof of complicity. It can also be an expression of prophetic humility. Furthermore, silence is sometimes the best response when you're speaking to a fool. Now, by fool, I mean the sort of person that Proverbs 26.4 is describing when it says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him yourself. Now that's referring to the stubborn-hearted person who's speaking to you, but not really listening. Who's interrogating you, but isn't really interested in answers, or more importantly, in hearing God's truth. You know, so a person hears you talk about racism, and then they respond by rolling their eyes and calling you a Marxist. Refusing, refusing to engage the things you've actually said and the places in scripture from which you have spoken, though you try and try and try, do you know you have permission to walk away? Beloved, you do not have to respond to every troll. Jesus didn't. Remember how he was silent on trial before Herod. There is a time to walk away. Practice prophetic silence. The second limitation of prophetic speech that I want to point out is this. In the pursuit of racial healing, words, while essential, cannot serve as substitutes for relationships or action. Let me put this another way. If we recognize the threefold office of Christ, he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And if we minister by the spirit of Christ, then we can creatively describe all gospel ministry as having prophetic, priestly, and kingly dimensions. So in the ministry of racial reconciliation and justice, the prophetic dimension of this work, the important prophetic dimension, includes leading in public repudiation of racial sins, the correction of errors in belief and practice. The priestly dimension of this ministry entails leading in repentance, listening to and, and, and weeping with those who weep fostering cross-cultural relationships across differences and hostilities. And the kingly dimension entails leading in the administration of institutional change toward racial equity. For instance, by undoing racist and culturally exclusive policies, practices, leadership roles, norms. Now here's the point. We cannot make substantial progress in the ministry of racial healing apart from priestly work and kingly work. Prophetic witness 
always gets the most immediate applause. But prophetic witness by itself is never enough. And that is why, after the violence in Charlottesville, I was grateful, am grateful, for the prophetic condemnations of white supremacy that was offered by Christian leaders all around the country. But I also knew that what happens next, after the rhetorical smoke clears, is even more important. Because it would be far more consequential to the cause of racial justice for those same ministry leaders to dare to dismantle every vestige of the legacy of white supremacy that remains in the very institutions that they themselves lead. And some would pay a price for it. It's the truth. But I tell you, the church will not become more racially whole until leaders begin to lose their jobs or ministry budgets begin to shrink because they've chosen to do something more radical about racism in the church than simply talk about it. So prophetic speech is limited. Sometimes we need to be silent. All the time, we need to do more than just talk. We need to do more than just talk. Nevertheless, prophetic speech is powerful, God-ordained, and necessary. Again, according to Ephesians, it is the primary, though not exclusive, tool that we employ to build up the body into cross-cultural wholeness and maturity, and so we must speak. Let me say a few things on speaking in love and then a few things about speaking the truth. How do we speak in love? First of all, we speak in love by hearing Christ speak his love to you. When speaking prophetically, you must not need your neighbor's positive response. He may not listen. She may not repent. They may not change. You have no control over it. Your identity or self-image must not be drawn from the efficacy of your words. Jesus frees you from needing anyone's agreement, anyone's adoration, anyone's approval. Some of you are dying on the vine because of this. See, prophetic witness requires unshakable security in the love of Christ. So, whose voice do you most hear in your own heart? Is it your own? It better not be. Or is it the voice of the one who declares, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. You are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. I love you. I love you. Hallelujah. We speak in love 
first and foremost by hearing Christ speak his love to us. Second, we speak in love by seeking our enemy's good. Now, I'm talking about enemies, whether real or perceived, or Christian family that's acting like an enemy. As the Lord himself said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Of course, no one taught or embodied this enormous moral challenge of loving your enemy quite like Dr. King. Here's one thing that he said on the matter. When the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is the time which you must not do it. There will come a time in many instances when the person who hates you most, the person who has misused you most, the person who has gossiped about you most, the person who has spread false rumors about you most, there will come a time when you will have an opportunity to defeat that person. Love is the refusal to defeat any individual. When you rise to the level of love, of its great beauty and power, you only seek to defeat evil systems. Individuals who happen to be caught up in that system, you love, but you seek to defeat the system. Friends, yes, you may humbly confront, provided you always begin by confronting your own heart in repentance. And in the words of 2 Corinthians 10.5, you must demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. You may challenge and even successfully defeat their arguments, but you must not defeat the person. You must not, so, you must not speak so as to humiliate or diminish them personally, lest you, in so doing, diminish yourself. In fact, love must be found not only in the manner in which you speak, but also the goals for which you speak. Humble confrontation is a most loving act when it's brought to someone for their good. After all, for those who cling to racist ideologies or who defend those who do, their false sense of superiority or lust for supremacy distorts and disfigures their soul. Which is why James Baldwin spoke these words, you cannot lynch me and keep me in ghettos without becoming something monstrous yourself. And which is why Desmond Tutu wrote this concerning South African apartheid in the process of dehumanizing another in inflicting untold harm and suffering inexorably, the perpetrator was being dehumanized as well. See, even the oppressor needs to be set free. So you speak the truth and love, not only for your own liberation, you speak also for theirs. This is love. We speak love by seeking our enemies good. 
Third, we speak in love by speaking with subversive meekness. Subversive meekness. We must, of course, resist succumbing to external or physical violence. We must also resist what Dr. King called internal violence of spirit. There's a word in scripture that well captures this inward struggle. It's meekness. Now in an age when someone else's verbal ignorance or irresponsibility can become a literal threat to black lives, a call to speak meekly of all things sounds strange, even dangerous, does it not? Does meekness mean only to speak quietly or weakly or politely? In short, no. What does biblical meekness mean? So far for me, the best illustration that I've found on the meaning of meekness is a poem. It's called Who the Meek Are Not, written by Mary Carr. Let me read the key part in the middle. To understand the meek, she says, picture a great stallion at full gallop in a meadow who at his master's voice seizes up to a stunned but sudden halt. So with the strain of holding that great power in check, the muscles along the arched neck keep eddying and only the velvet ears prick forward awaiting the next order. Can you picture that great powerful, meek stallion. See, when applied to animals, that Greek word for meek means tame. As one Bible dictionary explains, such animals have not lost their strength, but have learned to control the destructive instincts that prevent them from living in harmony with others. See, meekness is a sort of strength, isn't it? That's why meek, that's why speech that's meek can also be firm. That's why speech that's meek can also be righteously indignant. Speech that's meek can also be loud. Let the loud people say amen. amen. You need that affirmation, don't you? Because meekness, you know, is controlling and channeling your inner hurricane of passion and truth toward a redemptive end. Meekness is Joseph McNeil, Franklin McCain, William Smith, and Clarence Henderson sitting down at the Woolworth lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, and refusing to get up despite intense pressure from the angry and jeering crowds. Meekness is Aisha Evans in that iconic image in an elegant gray dress standing in the middle of Airline Highway in Baton Rouge, 
feet firmly planted, staring resolutely ahead while being arrested by officers dressed in full military gear, looking better prepared for combat than for Ms. Evans' peaceful protest. Meekness, in the end, of course, is Jesus on the cross, controlling and channeling his eternal power not outwardly in rage towards those who mocked him and spit on him and nailed him to the cross. Indeed, he even uttered those great words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, but instead channeled his infinite power towards our atonement for the forgiveness of our sins and for eternal life. Behold the meekness of Jesus. And you can see how such meekness is subversive, don't you? You see, the, the, the genius of nonviolent resistance is that it exposes the folly of the perpetrator. It dramatizes the evil in full view of others. Meekness of speech is verbal, nonviolent resistance. It denudes and exposes the folly and evil of those who oppose you, whether their disproportionate anger or the incoherence of their argument, their stiff-necked resistance to the truth. Beloved, learn the secret of subversive meekness. Learn the secret of speaking in love. But there's the other half to the phrase we're examining, speaking the truth in love. What does that mean to speak the truth? How do we speak the truth? First, we speak the truth by confronting lies. Ain't that right, Dr. C? <laughs> we are called to unmask deception call out distortions, correct disinformation. We confront the lies, therefore, the lies that God is asleep at the wheel, that the pursuit of racial justice is more godless sociology than gospel fidelity, that the real problem is that you're too sensitive, too hysterical, too political, too unbiblical. And so we tell the truth. Tell the truth that we have racial wounds festering in the church. And they are false prophets and priests who heal the wounds of God's people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Tell the truth that the Great Commission, with its mandate to make disciples of all nations, is itself a cross-cultural commission. 
and one that is fulfilled not only by crossing national borders, but also by crossing real yet invisible redlining borders in our own cities. Tell the truth that American Christians have not truly reckoned with the white cultural captivity of the church. And tell the church and tell the truth to the church that the church has not adequately repented for its sins of racism, both past and present. But don't forget to tell the truth that Jesus has already broken down in his body the dividing walls of hostility that separates one from another, and that he's made available to us all the spiritual resources that we need to become one, if we would just only grab a hold of them by faith. Tell the truth that the word of God is sufficient and that it's vital to teach and learn about race and racism using biblical thought and categories. But also tell the truth that if the theological and political lenses through which we read that word have moral and categorical blind spots, then you can stare at the word all you want and still be left racially blind. Tell the truth that the cruciform redistribution of power and resources in beloved community can no more be written off as socialism then the stories of the early church sharing everything in common can be ripped out of the pages of the Bible. Tell the truth, friends. Tell the truth, my friends, with all love of enemy, all concern for his or her good. Indeed, with all meekness, confront lies and speak the truth. Secondly, Secondly, we speak the truth by challenging our own tribes. See, true prophetic witness shines light on moral blind spots. It disrupts false narratives. True prophetic witness challenges the status quo. But too often, some of you fancy yourselves a prophet in the wilderness when really you're preaching to the choir. Speaking the truth involves challenging your own tribe, your own affinity group or constituency. And I cannot explain this better than Sister Sharon Hottie Miller did in a fantastic piece she wrote several months ago Listen up. Prophetic disruption is not simply a matter of speaking hard or unpopular truths. I think what makes a message truly prophetic is its audience. When a conservative pastor preaches about modest dress to his pious congregation, this is not prophecy. <laughs> and and when a progressive evangelical tweets about care for the poor 
and oppressed to his sympathetic followers, this is not prophetic prophecy either, necessarily. If you are attempting to disrupt some other audience out there, then you are most likely shouting to the wind or toppling strawmen. But if you are stepping on the toes of your closest followers, then you are probably more in line with the prophetic tradition. I think she's right. True prophetic witness, truly speaking truth, keeps people off balance. So if you never get pushed back from those most like yourself, you're not speaking truth. If you're only surrounded by applause, which we all love, you're not speaking truth. If you're never agitating someone from your own political party, you're not a prophet, you're just a Democrat. <laughs> or a Republican. You're not speaking a transcendent truth that appeals to a higher authority, that secures a higher loyalty, and that leaves no human grouping of people smug or safe from the soul-piercing two-edged sword of the Word of God. And again, I'm not just talking about the trolls. I'm talking about people from your own social, political, or ecclesiastical tribes. Prophetic truth is truth that flusters your biggest fans. Third, we speak the truth by correcting flawed approaches to racial reconciliation. Now, I am not suggesting that we abandon the term reconciliation. It's biblical. It's in the Bible. In fact, it's precisely why we need to understand what it means. But we do need to redeem it because in practice, quote-unquote racial reconciliation has come to mean something flawed and sometimes something ineffective. See, my problem is not with its theological denotation, it's with its practical ministry connotation. So let me name four weaknesses of racial reconciliation, quote unquote, as commonly practiced in the evangelical church. Number one, it tends to be centered upon the perspective and experiences of white Christians and white churches. Its process, its, its pace, are generally structured around the feelings, the willingness, the readiness, the sincere motives of white Christians. It is assumed that African Americans must cater to members of the dominant group. It emphasizes it emphasizes the value and importance of growing in diversity, which of course is code for integrating more Christians of color in predominantly white congregations. 
and the members of color bear the brunt of the growing pains. When the going gets rough, the reconciliation process is held in balance by what might be called a politics of sanctification, which is to say more maturity of character and a deeper reservoir of grace is generally expected of black Christians than of white ones. Number two. Number two, racial reconciliation, quote unquote, tends to be excessively relationalistic and individualistic. That is, it overemphasizes the power of interpersonal relationships to solve racial problems. Which, of course, doesn't mean that relationships aren't critical to the project. In fact, that too is biblical. But this overemphasis corresponds to the general belief that the, that the sum total of racism is personal, active prejudice. And so it, its internal logic doesn't naturally lead one to address structural or institutional or corporate dimensions of racial injustice. It just stays right here. Number three, it tends to seek to heal division before adequately investigating the roots of that division. In other words, it tends to treat the symptom, racial alienation, rather than the deeper causes. Put another way, racial reconciliation often attempts to solve the problem of racial alienation by appealing to our common humanity and our shared gospel identity, yet while looking past the deep and lasting effects of sin and our troubling racial histories. Number four, it emphasizes unity in such a way that leads to the false assumption that each racial group is seen as similarly responsible for the problem of racial division. And so we have conversations about what we have contributed to the problem of racism and what we must do about it. Because you know there are failures, you know, on many sides. It struggles to name historic, programmatic, white normativity and supremacy, which are sins, biblically defined, as the primary cause of our present racial impasse. And then, to name it so, is labeled as divisive and disunifying. The racial reconciliation movement, which has good biblical reason 
to be reformed and to be persevered in and with. This is God's mission after all, the mission of reconciliation. Yet it is in need of fresh language and fresh strategies for addressing racial brokenness in the church. And so in light of this need, I humbly submit to you the proposal that our wing of the church introduce into its ministry lexicon the language of reparations. Which brings me to the fourth point about how we speak truth. Fourth, we speak truth by naming reparation as a fruit of true racial repentance. Now by reparation, hear me, I am first and foremost referring to the basic biblical obligation to repair breaches, to bind wounds, to restore losses, to re return what has been sinfully taken. I'm arguing this primarily from a theology of repentance, you see. If my sin has injured someone, the gospel obligates me not only to grieve those wrongs inwardly, but to redress those wrongs outwardly and concretely. In John the Baptist's words, true faith bears fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3.8. Similarly, when the Apostle Paul commends the Corinthians for their repentance, he lists in 2 Corinthians 7.11 the practical change it produced in them. Earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, alarm, readiness to see justice done. More to the point, once Zacchaeus was transformed by the gospel welcome of Jesus, he committed to giving half his possessions to the poor, and if he cheated anyone of anything, he promised to pay it back fourfold. Now here's the most important part. How did Jesus respond? Because Zacchaeus could have been wrong. Jesus didn't say, now Zacchaeus, it's okay. The only thing that matters is what's in your heart. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, now Z, That sounds like the social gospel. You better watch out for that slippery slope. No, when Jesus heard Zacchaeus 
promise restitutions, restitution for his wrongs, Jesus declared, today, salvation has come to this house. And this is what we need to understand. This is what we need to understand. Zacchaeus' spirit-wrought repentance, which, by the way, was produced by the kindness of the Savior, his spirit-wrought repentance is revealed, even completed, in his commitment to provide reparation for his wrongs. See, even my preschool-aged son has learned that saying I'm sorry is an important step, but that he also needs to ask the injured party, usually his big sister, <laughs> how can I make it better? Will the church learn to ask the same question? How? Can we make it better? In 1969, the National Committee of Black Churchmen asserted that historically the Christian church has served as the moral cement of the structure of racism in this nation and that therefore the church should share accountability for the problems of racism in America. And they were not wrong. 250 years of providing the moral grounds for slavery, 90 years of complicity with Jim Crow, 60 years of blessing separate but equal even in her pews, the church bears more responsibility for the racist heritage of the United States than we want to believe. For now, however, my attention is focused on the church's responsibility, not out there more broadly. That is an important conversation that we must have but for the church's responsibility for providing and repairing, marginalizing, and racist structures within the church. Have you noticed that in the evangelical and reformed church, you know, we tend to act as if the dearth of African Americans from our communion is a morally neutral uh, sociological phenomenon. In fact, much of the absence of black members can be traced back to the active and passive participation in anti-black racism by white Christians. What I mean is this, evangelical and especially reformed worship traditions aren't alienating to black Christians and other Christians of color 
only because of mere differences or preferences of cultural perspective. They are alienating in part because of the racist legacy that not only kept them out of the pews, but also excluded them from the generation after generation development of liturgical life, community life, and confessional theology. The Presbyterian Church is weak in addressing the core concerns of the black community because the Presbyterian Church literally was one of the core concerns of the black community. Let me say this again. The weekly discomfort that many of you feel, the weekly discomfort that an African-American feels in a mostly white PCA church is not only a product of present cultural differences, that discomfort is also the byproduct of past immoral exercises of social and ecclesiastical power. We need to reckon with that. So what would it look like for the church to make restitution for our racial wrongs? I invite discussion, conversation about that. Just to throw out a few things. First of all, first of all, we might call it ecclesiastical reparations. Reparations in the church, which begins, of course, with a reckoning with history. See, we need to rehistoricize the church's understanding of racial identity and racial relationships. Because you cannot repair something unless you know how it got broke in the first place. That leads to a deeper and better informed repentance, does it not? One that names with far greater specificity Repenting of specific sins specifically. One that names with far greater specificity the problem of white cultural normativity and supremacy in the church and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. We pursue concrete redress of actual structures and histories through which we have become so alienated. Applied to the church, reparation wouldn't simply mean a redistribution of material resources to individuals, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't involve material resources at all. Ecclesiastical reparations might involve financially supporting black churches in under-resourced congregations. 
It might include a denomination setting aside a more radical amount of money to subsidize its cross-cultural or specifically African-American ministries. Again, the idea is that of repairing and recovering what was lost by the historic exclusion of African-Americans from our churches. And so, ecclesiastical reparations might also include new approaches to leadership and polity that isn't simply more inclusive of African-Americans, but that centers on their gifts and abilities. It would involve a restructuring of community practices. See, amplifying minority views, uh, voices, rewriting our liturgies, reconsidering some contours of our confessional theology, rearranging our hymnody, all guided by a repentant imagination that pictures what ecclesial life might have been like today had African Americans been part of our churches for the last 300 years. In some ways, you might already be thinking, in some ways, ecclesiastical reparations might sound, might sound no different than other serious-minded, committed efforts to build racial equity and cross-cultural community in our churches. But the language matters. It, because it draws from a different theological vision. It appeals not to a vague and sentimental notion of outreach, or unity, or mission, but rather it appeals to a flint-faced resolve to seek justice, to correct oppression, and to complete our corporate repentance. Reparations, absolutely, I believe, has the ability to take us down the road to deeper more fuller, more rewarding, more lasting, more Christ-honoring reconciliation. Of course, we know that ministry like that is costly. It's hard work, and we labor. But, beloved, we labor with sure hope that our labor is not in vain. Because God is in the business of reconciliation. He befriended his enemies, I'm talking about you and me, brought us into his family freely. Don't you think he can then give us grace to do the same one to another? And God is in the business of reparation. Repairing broken things, wounded things, raising dead things to life. And speaking of resurrection, don't you know, don't you know, the resurrection of Jesus means that racism and white supremacy have an expiration date.
the resurrection means that racial oppression, inequity, division, superiority, inferiority, and apathy will not have the last word. Today, dear friends, we see in a glass dimly, but then we shall see face to face. One day the not yet will become the now. Beloved, we are going to get there. We're going to get there. Don't you remember how the story's going to end? Christ broken, divided, interculturally infantile body, I'm talking about us, will be presented to God in radiant, yes, maturity, in all her every tribe's tongues and nation's pan-ethnic unity. He's gonna do it. Your building up the body with prophetic words, friends, is never in vain. Never in vain. And even as we labor day by day, we wait for that day, don't we? We wait for that day. More than that, we wait on the Lord. For they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. In our racial weariness today, we wait on the Lord and renew our strength. So rise up and soar on wings like eagles. Rise up and run and not be weary. Rise up, O prophet people of God. Rise up and speak the truth in love. Hallelujah. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.